Now, you may not, obviously, uh, a lot of you don't follow tennis, but some of you follow the NFL or the NBA. Raise your hand if you do. Yeah? So when it's draft day and they come up with all these names of people, your team is drafting, how many of you know every single person they're drafting? Right? No. Right? Most of the time you don't. And so the first question you're asking is, what is this person like? Are they any good? You know, are they going to be a real team player? Are they going to stick around for a while? Or are they going to be one and done or just a few years and gone, you know, a flash in the pan? Are they going to be good for our team? Are they going to be good for our community? What kind of person is this that we've hired to be on our team? We're all pretty curious to find out what other folk are like, I believe. What is God like? What is God like? Numerous times, in fact, Jesus asked this question in our behalf. What is God like? Jesus said in Luke chapter 13 and Matthew 13, and notice that word, and again, and again, Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? To get a handle on what God is like, Jesus asked this question, to what can we compare God? To what? Now, I think that's a pretty fair question. And, of course, he's also asking, how particularly does God work in a person's life? What is God like? And how does he get his work done? When he talks about changing someone's heart, how does he get that done? And so we're reading. And again, Jesus said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? And he went on to say, it is like leaven that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Hmm. Now, if you were thinking about the Bible, the Bible was written in a particular place at a particular time, and so there are some cultural items that might be handy as we think about this short little parable. Leaven was viewed both negatively and positively. Uh, by the Jewish people, and, and so in the Bible. So you'll see sometimes where it talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, it's a negative thing. But there's a time in Amos, for example, chapter 4, verse 5, where God asked people for thank offerings that were made with leavened bread. So leaven's not all bad in Jewish thinking. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Leaven is not the same thing as yeast. Did you know that? Leaven is fermented dough. Baking bread was a family task. If you read the book of Jeremiah, you will discover that the kids gathered the woods. What, what, what a tough job, right? Put on the kids. The kids gathered the wood. The dad built the fire, and the mom kneaded the dough. That's what we discover when we read Jeremiah 7.18. In some other parables that Jesus also spoke, we learn certain things. Things that are very much uh, attached or a similar line of thought is this idea. The three measures that this woman mixed together for her dough equals about three gallons. This lady was not making bread for her family. She was going to feed her entire village. A lot of people. She was ambitious. We're talking enough to feed 100 to 150 people. Very ambitious. 
In some other parables you can read that Jesus spoke, you discover that the sower of the seed sowed everywhere, represented by four different types of soil. Not only that, the sower was very ambitious. We're told by Jesus that the field represents the world. Well, that's pretty ambitious undertaking, isn't it? And then, of course, Jesus told us a little parable about the, the net. And in the net, both good fish and bad fish were brought in. And, of course, this woman, her leaven is put into a huge batch of flour. And so the picture of God's kingdom is consistent, it's very persistent in telling us that God is involved in a very ambitious undertaking. Very ambitious, right? God wants to impact our whole world for good. He wants to impact for good every living creature on our world. Every living creature, human or not. Now, I remember listening to this song back in the day. It was by a group called Audio Adrenaline. And they sang this song entitled Big House. It's a big, big house, right? With lots and lots of room. Big, big table with lots and lots of food. Any of you ever heard that song? Yeah. And the idea is to tell us that God is ambitious in his designs to make friends. He wants a lot of people to become his friends. Do you and I admire God's persistent ambition in winning friends? Are we equally ambitious about winning friends for God? If not, why not? But this is how the story uh, that we're talking about, the woman leavening her bread, began. Remember, it began like this. Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? And Jesus was always asking this question. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God or something like it? And, you know, I was thinking as we were talking about the final empire, there are a number of images that Daniel used to describe the nations of the world, right? Why didn't Jesus use an image of some fierce, huge animal to describe what God's kingdom is like? Why didn't he use some grand human kingdom to describe what God's kingdom is like? A person in our church quite some time ago wrote this. To Daniel was given a vision of fierce beasts representing the powers of the earth. But the ensign, the symbol of the Messiah's kingdom, is a lamb. What? While earthly kingdoms rule by the ascendancy of physical power, Christ is to banish every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion. So the reason she's saying that Jesus did not use some fierce animal, some grand human kingdom, to describe for us what God's kingdom is like is because God does not use force. God does not use force. Whoa. Now that's an incredible clock because when we think about the many times in which Jesus asked the question, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? He definitely did not use a bear, a lion, a tiger, etc. No. In this case, he uses a woman baking bread. Baking bread. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? That is the question. Jesus couldn't use a huge, vicious animal, right? Because God does not win hearts by overpowering people. 
Jesus couldn't use some powerful earthly government because he does not use the methods that we so often use in order to either win our arguments or win our battles. So most of the time, Jesus picks something from the natural world, some plant, some seed, or maybe some regular daily chore that humans engaged in, such as baking bread. All of these things were always nonviolent. So what is there about this particular parable that you may find interesting? It was pretty short, right? It's a woman. She mixes leaven in with her dough, a lot of dough. What do you find interesting? Just shout it out. I'm curious what you think. The word until. She did it until. Okay? Yeah. What else? All of it. Okay? All of it was leavened. That's good. If you uh, know anything about dough, you really don't want it. Well, some kids eat it, but, you know, for the most part, nobody wants to eat unleavened dough. What else? Leaven's a pretty small portion, in, you know, in comparison to what she was trying to accomplish, right? Yeah. What else? Pre-measured. Hmm. Okay, in other words, enough to get the job done. No doubt she used enough to get the job done. Yeah, okay. So I was with a uh, group of uh, college students recently teaching a class on the parables, and uh, so I asked them this same question, and they started giving me some answers. And the first thing, of course, is that God's kingdom is like leaven. It's a little bit hidden. You don't always see it in some grandiose way. But it also works internally, right? It's a woman's story, which they like. You know, we sometimes forget, you know, uh, certain things like God does not win his battles by, you know, using some new and, and nasty, you know, warmongering technique. God works on the inside to change human hearts. But God values women just as much as he values men, and he doesn't mind using their daily events to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like. Everyday life is the stuff of God's kingdom. Everyday life. Your everyday life. My everyday life. If Jesus was telling a story today to us to describe what God is like, he would use events from our everyday life. That means your everyday life matters to God, doesn't it? And then, of course, this woman made a lot of bread. I mean, it was ambitious. She was feeding the entire community. And when we choose to let God, you know, work in our hearts, we become part of all of the people whom God is changing for the better. God wants to change us for the better. The leaven changes the entire batch of dough, not just a little bit of it, but all of it. And so we can be confident, there's this text that says, you can be confident that what God began, he will finish in your life. We can be confident that God is working in our entire hearts. And why would God want to settle for less than all of our best? I mean, right? I wouldn't. How many of you have ever walked into a place where they're baking fresh bread? Done that? And uh, maybe it was like uh, the Cinnabon. No, I shouldn't use that, right? Because then you'll start thinking and salivating while I'm preaching. But, you know, maybe you walk into some place like that and that smell hits you and you think, whoa, this is good. 
fresh bread, fresh cinnamon rolls. Mm-mm-mm. Well, God wants us to be winsome people, doesn't he? I mean, isn't that why bread smells so good, tastes so good? God wants us to be. And while God, why, why God is so willing to use bread as an example of what the kingdom of God is like, it's the whole of this story, you know, the woman who's baking bread. And God is teaching us through the whole of this story things. And one of the things he says is, I want you to not just be useful, I want you to smell and taste good, as it were. I want you to be winsome. I want you to be the kind of people that when others look at your life, they go, you know, if that's what a Christian is like, I'd like to be one. I'd like to be one. But here's another interesting part. The leaven changes dough over time. You know, we spoke about this recently when we were looking at the book of Genesis. God wants our lives to be winsome, but God tends to slow things down. We're in all a big hurry. God, you know, just fix me and fix me now. But God says, I want you to make up your mind and know that you have all the information you need in order to make an informed decision, a good decision. Have you ever had a salesman approach you and really put the thumb screws, the pressure on you to choose now? Don't leave the lot because the deal's only as good as long as you're here. How many of you bought that car or walked away? Because you don't like that kind of pressure, right? I don't like that kind of pressure at all. And when somebody calls me or you know, talks to me like that, I immediately walk away. I'm done with that conversation. Don't like that. God does not propose to work that way. In the changes that God is working in your life, in my heart, he says, I want you to have enough time to get the job done well and be comfortable at every step of the changes you're making. Right? God takes his time. Do you and I admire people who take their time to do their job well? The last time you had your muffler fixed, if it was uh, really rapid, beyond what you thought it should have been, were you comfortable paying the bills? Or maybe uh, somebody came in to fix something in your house, and uh, they hardly got out the door, and it was broke again. And they ran it out, and now it's broke again. And you're thinking, did they take the time to do the job right? God takes his time. Why? Because God is not just trying to, uh, you know, accomplish something like putting down human and angelic rebellion. There's a whole lot more to what God is trying to do than that. Well, that's an awful lot, I think, in a tiny little parable like this. But Jesus went on to tell another one. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. One of the things I noticed in a textual kind of way is that I think that said the kingdom of God involves celebration. Didn't it? It said, out of joy, this man does what he does. Uh, And in fact, other parables focus on finding and joy, such as the lost sheep, the lost coin, the two lost sons, otherwise known as the prodigal son, but it's really the two lost sons. And uh, then there are various sayings in the book of Matthew where this parable we're studying comes from. Um, You know, there is this idea that God is a happy person. What? I said that out loud? God is a happy person. 
God is a happy person, and he wants his followers to also be happy people. Growing up, of course, with a much harsher view of God, this is often rather hard for us to wrap our minds around. God is a happy person. There's some cultural information that we should probably know in all cultures, including modern ones. People have often hidden their money, often in times of war. That is not nearly as uncommon as you might think. And then, of course, in the Bible, there is this story about a servant who actually hides his talent in the ground, and he's not in adverse circumstances. It's not like wartime. So people did it rather routinely. Archaeologists find those treasure troves ever so often. Recently, they found a, a really incredible one with some coins. Uh, just, man, it was an amazing find. But here's the part sometimes people will ask me. Well, you know, is it illegal or immoral to keep it? No. In most places of the world, what you find is yours. That's the way it is. I mean, once in a while, that's, uh, that's outside if it's an archaeological treasure of some nation. But for the most part, it is finders keepers. Yeah. In this case, he, uh, he made it his, right? And so we read, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So why does God portray finding him as something in which, in which one has to do, which one has to sell everything they have in order to possess God? Why would God put finding him possessing him in such strong language. Have you ever wondered that? I mean, you have to sell all that you have to gain God. Why is that? Well, if God is beyond our expectations, if God is beyond compare, if nothing in all of the universe compares to God, then it seems that giving all to acquire God would be a worthwhile adventure. And notice this particular person did sell all that they had with a great deal of joy in order to possess this treasure, this hidden treasure. If Jesus is the treasure that's being illustrated here in this parable, what does it mean for us as finders to sell all that we have, that we might have God? What might that mean to you? Somebody? Surrender. Surrender of your life. Okay, what else? Yeah, give up some earthly treasures for heavenly treasures. What else? Give up old habits, okay? Particularly ones that may not be that positive. You had your hand up? Well, that's certainly true. Uh, he is the prince of this world. That's how he's been styled in Scripture. Uh, although he's a usurper, right? I mean, he... God actually owns the world, but it is true, yes. What would it mean to give up everything you have with joy? Exactly. Yeah, if, you, if it costs more, you'd be willing to give it, because what you think you're gaining is so much better than what you think you're losing. Isn't that true? Yeah. Well... There was a guy named uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, and he wrote this song called Treasure Island. And in that song, he depicts the treasure as being the Bible. He goes out, he sails out to Treasure Island when he goes into a room and he begins to study God's Word. What would it mean for us to 
sell all that we have in order to gain the truths of Scripture, what would that look like in your life? What, what might you need to do? Read it. There, there's, a, there's a novel thought right there, right? Read it, yeah. What would it mean to do this with joy? To take time to study the Scriptures and enjoy it while you're doing it. What, would you, what might you and I do every day that would reveal that Jesus is a treasure to us, that the Bible is so important to us that we would be willing to give up whatever that we might understand it and apply it to our lives? Is the Bible a treasure to you? Is Jesus a treasure to you? How much joy do you and I experience while we may be studying its pages? Do we just whiff through it as quickly as we can? Oh, it's done now. Maybe we've got an assignment for school, or maybe, uh, you know, uh, it's the Sabbath school lesson, and we're used to at least reading it, and so boom, we do it, and we're done. What would it mean for us to do these things with joy? And if you have joy while you're studying the Bible, do you share that joy with other people? Do you? So, <clears throat> when I was younger... I was more than just a little bit of a reader. I remember many, many days going down to the public library, checking out a dozen solid books, and two days later bringing them all back. I had read every page. Uh, I can remember once showing up at the library on a Friday, checking out the books, stashing home. On Monday, I brought them all back, some of them five, 600 pages. Spent the entire weekend reading, 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 reading. I love to read. I grew up, I, I learned to read at the age of four, and so obviously uh, I put it to good use all the time. I enjoyed reading. So I thought, you know, when God was beginning to appeal to my heart to become a Christian, I was uh, yeah, about 20 years old, and I thought, this is going to be easy peasy. And I sat down and I began reading my Bible, and uh, well, actually I didn't sit down, I uh, was in my bed. I got up and uh, then I grabbed my Bible and I went back inside, you know, it was cold that particular time of the year, and I still had the... Uh, the electric blanket going, and uh, sat down to read, and to my horror, uh, woke up about half an hour later with my face firmly planted on the ink, and I thought, what? I had never fallen asleep while reading a novel. What's going on here? And I did this day after day after day until one time I literally shouted out loud, God, I thought you wanted this for me. I thought you wanted me to read this book. What's going on? And God whispered to me, well, you know, that electric blanket? Uh, maybe if you sat up at your desk, and I had a desk at that time. It was given to me by my grandpa. Maybe if you sat up at your desk, you'd be a little more alert. Oh, really? Uh, I hadn't thought about that. And maybe if you drank some water, you know, I didn't drink coffee, so if you drank some water, uh, it will boost your alertness. And try splashing a little cold water in your face when you first get up. Well, I tried all those things, and to my surprise, they worked. And I began to, to be able to stay awake while I was reading the Bible, because I found, to my interest and to my sorrow, 
that the Bible is a little more serious subject than most novels, and it took a little more alertness on my part to appreciate it. Okay. But I found that it took me six months to make that transition from no Bible reading to being a Bible reader. Six long months, which I never expected. I never expected at all. In this particular passage in the book of Proverbs, we read, If you indeed cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Here the person is an active seeker, not like the uh, story in our parable where the person kind of stumbles upon the treasure and then goes out and buys the field. This person's actively seeking truth. Are you actively seeking truth? Are you actively seeking it? Hmm. Especially the truth about God? Well, our last parable is this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now, Jesus did not identify this person, this merchant, as either Jewish or Gentile, male or female. So we can imagine anything, pretty much. Could be any kind of a person, just a business person. And they are seeking a fine pearl. The merchant is seeking the best of pearls, right? And uh, there are significant places in the Gospel of Matthew where that word seek makes some sense to us when we read this parable. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else you need will be added to it, right? Matthew 7, 7 to 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you, right? In Matthew 18, the story is turned a little bit. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that is lost? Jesus describes himself as a good shepherd, so here he's not just talking about you and me, he's also talking about his own life experience. And in teaching us, tells us what God is like, right? If even one is lost, Jesus goes looking for them. Now, you may think you've wandered away from God, but if you're here today, God is still drawing you to him. It may not be as quickly as you imagine. It may not be in any way that you have imagined, but he is still working in your heart, drawing you closer to him. There's some cultural ideas that you might need to know if you're reading. The Old Testament actually does not explicitly mention pearls. Um, the New does, the Old does not. Where translations in the Old Testament use the word pearl, it's actually talking about other kinds of jewels, or maybe even coral. Here are some verses that would show you that. And then, of course, here's the part that you need to know when you hear this short little parable. Pearls were regarded as the most precious objects in existence. Which is why Jesus picked the pearl to teach this truth. And then, of course, the risks and rewards of being a business person are many and quite great. It's feast or famine. Any of you ever been self-employed? Yeah, some of you are self-employed now. I've been self-employed. It's feast and famine at times. Sometimes it's great, sometimes not so good. Uh, but you have to work hard at it if you want to succeed. The risks are great. 
when you go into business for yourself. Have you ever given, though, your all to possess something? You know, maybe you've saved up. I can remember one time, I've told you this story before, I wanted to buy my wife a new set of knives. She likes to cook. She likes to cut up food. And I wanted to give her the best of knives. And so I began this process of figuring out who, who had them, uh, how much they cost. And I slowly, over almost an entire year, using all the money I could muster that she wouldn't notice was gone, right? All the money I could muster to buy her this set of knives, a block to put them in, a cutting board, and all that stuff. She still has all of that. Sometimes you really do have to give it your all, right? I mean, in fact, most of the things you do in life, if you give it your all, how does it turn out? Better? Turns out better if you give it your all? The Apostle Paul surrendered some things, and he spoke about knowing Jesus in this way in Philippians 3. Yet whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, the pearl of great value. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as mere rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Is it possible that something, something needs to change in your life in order for you to gain Jesus? Is that possible? That something needs to change in your life, my life, in order for us to gain Jesus. But then now while we're talking about the story of the pearl of great value, how does God view us? Can we not say that Jesus gave all for us? I mean, have you ever read these texts, various texts planted throughout Scripture that talk about people as the apple of God's eye? Right? And what does that mean? What does that mean? To be the apple of God's eye. I identified these people in this row as what kind of friends of mine? My best friends, the top of the list, right? In the Seattle area, the best friends I have in that area. Best friends I've had. I kept in contact with them for the years. They've kept in contact with me. A couple of you even, you know, drove out, right, to Ohio when I lived there to see us. How does God view us? How does God view us? You remember the gift of Jesus? The Bible says, unto us a son is, well, how does it go? Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born, or something along that line in that Handel song, something like that. And the idea is that God has given us Jesus for eternity, never to be taken back. That's quite a rich gift, but that's not all. Isn't it true that when it comes to all the other, as it were, people in heaven, as it were, God emptied heaven that he might have us? That he might win us as his friends? Is it not true, like in the book of Zechariah, do we not read, that we can even have angels as companions? He's emptied heaven for us. How does God value us? Well, like the pearl of great value. Do we deserve it? No. But does he do it? Yes. We are the pearl of great value in his eyes. He has given everything. Why does he do that? Well, he's generous to a fault because probably 
he could have accomplished winning us as his friends with less, but that is not what God is like. He's generous to a fault. He gives all because he loves to give all. He's that kind of person. I've always enjoyed knowing that I have friends who are willing to do whatever for me. And I have some. They're sitting right here. I mean, they've had my back many a time. Uh, you would not be, <laughs> well, you know, I lived in, in uh, Ohio 14 years, but my parents lived in Olympia, Washington. I often had to fly from Ohio to Seattle. And uh, the hour differences between that trip always meant that when I got ready to fly back out, I had to be at the airport at 4 o'clock in the morning. So, person, raise your hand. Raise your hand. This lady right here often took us to the airport at 4 o'clock in the morning. Now, did it matter how hard her day was that day? Nope. Did it anyway. She put us up for the night, usually the night before, so we could leave and, you know, wouldn't have to travel from Olympia. We'd be traveling a little closer to the airport. Do you know what it's like to have somebody, you know, give their best, give their all for you? Jesus, Jesus has done that. God has done that. Unselfish giving. And so we read, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. And so the scriptures tell us that Jesus is also that pearl in our eyes. We read, I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus has became for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Well, if that's true, and by the way, most people are pretty impressed with Jesus' brand of spirituality. Do you know what that brand consisted of? Love God and love your neighbor. Now, most people are pretty impressed with Jesus' brand of spirituality. Loving God and loving your neighbor, that's, well, first off, it's pretty simple. But secondly, it runs pretty deep. And I like to be loved. Do you want Jesus' kind of spirituality? Well, the difference between the last two parables, it seems to me, is that one guy, you know, accidentally stumbles <laughs> upon the treasure. And that's why I think it represents humanity in their search, as it were, for God. In this case, the guy wasn't searching. He simply stumbled upon it. And then the other one, the guy who's actively seeking the pearl, I notice he's actively seeking the pearl, represents not only God actively seeking for us, but represents us actively seeking for God. And why is it, though, that both both parties find God. If one isn't looking and still finds God and the other is actively looking and finds God, why is that? Why? Because the Bible teaches us that with his loving kindness, God is drawing us. God is drawing us with his loving kindness. He uses every good thing he has because he wants us to be friends. What is God like? Well, first of all, He's like the woman. He's ambitious. He wants to save everyone. He's making a big batch of bread. So he does everything he can, God does, to win people. He doesn't use force. He inserts a little something into the mix that begins to grow. 
Bread always smells good, and God wants a winsome, great life for us. Thirdly, just as leavening dough takes time, God gives us time. All the time we need in order to make a great decision for or against him. We have time. Fourthly, God is interested in changing us entirely. He doesn't want to just leave us half-baked. Any of you ever had half-baked bread? Not so good. Not so good at all. In fact, even all you, all you got to do is leave the salt out of it, and I'm not interested. Fifthly, God likes using women's stories. I wish they could somehow beat that into people's heads a little bit more, that he does like to use women's stories to teach truth. And sixthly, of course, God values us. We are the pearl of great value to him. He values us. Now, God is not only, by valuing us, God is not only setting our world right, he's giving us a model for how we can set our world right. You want to set your world right? You don't do it by criticizing and beating up and destroying the people around you. You do it by valuing them highly. That will set your world right. And lastly, of course, God wants us to value him. Why? Why? Well, you ever heard the term reality check? If you value something that's truly valuable, that shows you're in your right mind. Doesn't it? Giving our best to God is always a great way to live life anyway, it seems to me. What is God like? Well, I hope these short little parables have at least given you some insight into his character. Because God is infinitely good, and he is infinitely good. Because he's infinitely good, we want him to be king in our lives. Not because he wants to lord it over us, that's not the case. He wants to bring us infinite good. He wants to bring us infinitely good. And that is why we bend the knee and we let God direct our lives. Because he knows better than we do how to live life. Would you join me in making this daily choice, bending the knee to God, because he knows better? So, ladies, would you come up, share your song?
monster goes beyond what you can see. Bow the knee, lift your eyes toward heaven and believe the one who holds eternity. And when you don't understand,
Let's pray. Father God, the simple little parables that Jesus told, often asking questions, asking us to be thinking people, but wondering if we know what you are like. Help us to go to your word, to the Bible, and look for the clear teaching that's there regarding the kind of person you are. And Father, thank you for being such a generous, loving person. Thank you for being infinitely good and wanting to bring nothing but infinite good to each life here. Father, I pray that you will bless us and enrich us so that we will always consider you to be the pearl of great value. And thank you for inexplicably looking at us as your 